This episode of Crime Wave, you'll be hearing Richard C. Katz reading his short story, Heavy Duty. In fact, it's a crime. It's a crime. Here come the drums! C-R-I-M-E-W-A-V. You're rolling with the Crime Wave, the Internet's first and only podcast devoted to the art of the crime short story. I'm Seth Harwood, the Crime Wave's creator, your crime caper commentator. This month's episode is hosted by Rob Olson and Livius Nedded, the boys from the Booked Podcast. Check them out. The Crime Wave is produced with help from Aldo Calcano and Lee Dalmonte. It is not safe for your minivans, so put those earmuffs on your kids. Welcome back, Crime Wave listeners. I am Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Um, as mentioned at the top of the episode, we have a we have a <laughs> we have a, we have a great story, but here's the thing about this story tonight. The production value on this story is better than on any story I think I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. And this guy certainly does a better job of audio than Rob and I do, either on Crime Wave or on Booked, our other podcast. Yeah, yeah, for co- <laughs> For contrast, right now, um, outside of my apartment, even though I have done everything I can to soundproof this this place, there's definitely a food truck running a generator, so I'm doing everything I can in post to get rid of that sound. Uh, in the story you're about to hear, this dude's got, like, sound effects, like phones are ringing, you can hear, like, car engines, like, idling and stuff. It's, yeah, if there's a generator from a food truck in this story, <laughs> it's because he wanted there to be. <laughs> <laughs> because he lives across the street from a nightclub. Yeah, he. Um, and what a great reading voice this guy has. <laughs> I mean, seriously, this is this is um, uh, from a, from a production value standpoint, hands down, the best short story I've heard. Yeah, definitely. Now, a word of warning: I know at least with the episodes of Crime Wave that Livius and I have been involved in. the The duration has been a little on the shorter side, so like fifteen to thirty probably minutes this one jumps it up a little bit it's a 50 minute story so it does take a little bit of time but um uh yeah definitely uh, the the production value is amazing yeah it doesn't seem that long because you're 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 just constantly sucked in by his voice and and the other elements of the story so i I think um since we've got a long story ahead of us um i think we're just going to go right into it here is richard c katz with heavy duty heavy duty by Richard C. Katz. The peak of Mount San Jacinto burned red and gold from the rising sun. Earl sat on the balcony, binoculars on his lap, the California high desert air as cold as the can of beer in his hand. When he bought this place back in 74, the realtor said you could see bobcats in the morning hunting on the mountains. Earl liked that, but after two years, the only action he caught was a few birds roosting and a coyote searching for rats among the rocks. He shook the last drop from the beer can as the phone rang. He took his time getting up. It couldn't be important. Who's this? Earl, it's Teddy. How you doing? Teddy? Who the fuck is Teddy? Teddy M. I used to drive for you in Chicago. Oh, yeah, Teddy Bear. Come on, man. You know I don't like being called that. You got a hell of a nerve calling me, you fucking prick. That situation was beyond my control, Earl. You know that. I'd never do anything against you. But when the cops pulled up, I had to take off. I look too suspicious parked right there. You left me on the street holding the bag. You got away okay. No thanks to you. Earl, listen, I got something for you. If it's that double C-note you owe me. What double C-note? The 200 I covered you for at Washington Park. You forgot that sure thing already? Oh, yeah. No, no, I didn't forget. 
You're so foolish. I'm setting up something real good for you here in Phoenix. I don't. You ain't calling from Chi-Town? I've been living in Phoenix for a couple of years. I moved here right after you left. I met this chick, Maureen, and we got married. Yeah, yeah, she sounds like a nice girl, Teddy. Hey, you got what from me? Details, come on. Well, you remember Alvin from Phoenix? He's the local that runs RT Limited here for, you know, for the guy. You remember RT, right? Yeah, sure. Racetracks, horses, dogs, concessions, parking, the whole kit caboodle. A great racket. I met Alvin once. A rich, big, fat fucker. Likes to throw his money around. Yeah, that's him. So is Alvin going to give me my 200? Uh, uh, I'm calling from Alvin's lawyer's office. Marty. Yeah, I know him too. Did a few things. He remembers you, man. Marty's a real smart guy. <laughs> Glad you think so. Look here, Teddy. I'm laying low and serving my resources. So if this is just an apology and ain't about the 200... 15 large, Earl. Plus all your expenses for one job. Heavy lifting, but nothing you're not used to. In and out in four days max. Marty says to tell you he'll buy you a nice steak, too. Hey, we figure you might be getting bored up there in the mountains, you know, so why not? Earl? Earl? You there? Give me your number. I'll call you from Sky Harbor when I get in. You still driving caddies? Big, said Marty. Loud and clear. So people get the message. What was left of Marty's hair was mostly silver and overdue for a trim. His dark blue suit looked like a European cut, but was just a knockoff from Chicago and in need of dry cleaning. His lapel sported a fraternal order of police pin. On his right hand, he wore a yellow class ring from the University of Arizona Law School, and on his left, a platinum pinky ring with a two-and-a-half carat diamond that caught the light even in this dark corner of the world. Something showy. Alvin was thinking a car bomb at noon in the middle of downtown, said Teddy. He wore a white dress shirt open at the neck, no tie, a cheap-looking seersucker black-and-white checked sports coat, black slacks, and black loafers. Exactly, said Marty, his glass thumping on the table. Sends a message. Earl tugged at the cuffs of his gray sports jacket. His arms seemed to have grown a couple of inches since he last wore it. Yeah, I get it, but a waitress appeared with their entrees. Three ribeyes, medium rare. Earl sipped his Glenfiddich and checked out the place while the waitress delivered her spiel about the food. Earl knew this was supposed to be someplace special. The owner, a personal friend of a friend, and a silent partner in a casino in Las Vegas. The style was intended to remind customers of a famous upscale restaurant in Chicago's south side, but the tables and booths were too close, the rooms too dark, the service too slow and casual. They were seated in the larger of the restaurant's two rooms, at a corner table towards the back, Alvin's favorite table, Marty had bragged. Marty had a view of the front entrance, and Teddy, the door to the kitchen. Earl stared at a wall covered in red flock velvet that reminded him of old ladies' dresses and the linings of coffins. Marty and Teddy started cutting their steaks as soon as the plates landed. The waitress left, and Earl picked up where he left off. What I'm saying, I've done it the way you said, noisy, but there's risk. You want to send a message? Fine, that's your business. But for me... It's more work and more risk, and that'll cost more money if you want it done right. Teddy continued to cut his steak, but Marty put his knife and fork down, carelessly knocking both big rings against the wooden table, and leaned back in his chair. He sensed the squeeze coming from Earl. It wasn't that Marty didn't believe Earl or didn't recognize the risk. The only question was how much more this was going to cost. There was plenty in the slush fund left over after wasting eight grand on a P.I. sent to dig up dirt on Kelly. The P.I. came back empty, claiming the investigative reporter was a saint. That's when Marty decided to hire a pro. 
Bright light caused Marty to squint as the front door opened, admitting five laughing silhouettes backlit by glaring sunlight. Earl turned to watch them, and Marty examined Earl's profile in the harsh light. Earl changed little since he lived in Phoenix and worked with a crew known for skimming nearly a million in gold from Dynacor's chip reprocessing plant. Tall and broad like a prize fighter, with black curly hair and gray eyes, he moved with the confidence of a cat through the light or the dark. Earl was competent and clever, took care of himself, and took care of anyone who stood in his way. Marty hired him a half dozen times to lean on people in need of a push, and once to make a problem disappear, so he told Teddy to call him, in spite of Teddy's objections. Earl was muscle with a motive, hard steel that could be used like a sharp blade, but make one mistake handling him and you bled. Marty's gaze passed over to Teddy, still busy with his stake. Teddy begged Marty to let him do the deed himself, as much for the prestige as the points, claiming he busted his cherry long ago in Chicago. Marty had seen the kid step up to the plate more than once. He was loyal, but mostly Teddy was a grifter, a fast-talking, handshaking, calculating con man who knew everybody and every opportunity in town. But Teddy wanted what every man wanted, more. All Teddy felt he needed was the opportunity. Marty told him this moment wasn't his. Too much was resting on getting it right the first time. Earl picked at his steak and sipped his whiskey while watching the lawyer watch Teddy. Waiting was never a problem for Earl. Never made him uneasy or feel he had to rush things. Finally, Marty sat up, jabbed his fork into a cherry tomato and pointed it at Earl as if to offer him a bite. First, I want you to know that we don't expect much blowback over this. Marty shoved the tomato into his mouth and seemed to swallow it without chewing it. This reporter, Kelly, has pissed off everybody and anybody trying to make a buck in town. He's got cops, businessmen, investors, government people, and that's all I have to say about that, so don't ask. Even the owners of the fucking newspaper where he works wishing he was gone. But here's the thing. Albin's family is one of those Phoenix 40 families you don't read about that runs this town. They do a lot to make sure their names stay out of the papers. Well, this John Kelly gets a bug up his ass about Albin and starts asking about his business, and then Albin's business becomes everybody's business. And Albin doesn't like the light, and he certainly doesn't need the heat. So you'll be doing Albin and his family a big favor that he will never forget. You never know when that kind of juice will come in handy. I ain't looking for no juice, Counselor, said Earl. And I'm sitting here because you invited me here to talk about a job. So let's cut the bullshit. Earl raised his empty glass to catch the waitress's eye, signaling for a refill. Marty bent towards Earl over the table, close enough for Earl to smell Marty's breath, which was surprisingly minty. Listen, I'm leveling with you. Marty put his hand over his heart. This is a vendetta. Kelly got close to Alvin's ex-wife. He may be fucking her for all I know. He's been advising her, telling her to sue Alvin to increase her bullshit claims for child support. But all he really wants is a close look at Alvin's tax return, which become public the second they are entered into evidence in court over her lawsuit. That makes Alvin's Chicago business associates nervous. He sat back in his chair. And that makes Alvin nervous, as I know a guy like you can understand. So tell him to give her the money and shut her up. Alvin doesn't want to give the bitch another dime. If that's all it is, talk to the wife and throw a scare. Nah, Teddy leaned in, most of his steak already gone. We tried that. I called her at her house in Newport Beach and told her we'd put a bomb in her car if she didn't back off. She laughed at me and hung up. The bitch is greedy, but I know she ain't stupid. She would have folded if Kelly wasn't pushing her to go to court and promising to make her look good in the papers. The expression on Earl's face stopped Teddy before he returned to his stake. Let me get this straight. You told her you were going to put a bomb in her car? Teddy's hands did a little dance. That was just something to say. 
just that somebody was going to do it. I disguised my voice. Anyway, she didn't believe me. Jesus, Earl looked at Marty. Teddy, give him the notebook, said Marty. Teddy took a small notebook out of his jacket and handed it to Earl. I did all the surveillance for you. Teddy pointed as Earl opened the notebook. There's Kelly's information and schedule. Well, as much of a schedule as the guy's got. There's a picture of him from the papers in there, too. Addresses, phone numbers, family, associates, where he works, where he lives, what he drives, a picture of the car and the license plate numbers, where he eats, drinks, takes his family. Earl skimmed the notes. Seven kids? Yeah. You collect all this yourself? Yeah. How? I tailed his ass all over town. Talked to some people who know him. Took me a couple of weeks. He just bought a new car, a Datsun 710, a cheap thing, nothing fancy. The kind of thing you buy your kid going away to college. But he talks about it like it's a caddy. And once a week, he comes here for lunch. Here? Earl resisted looking around. He likes to eat here? Is he here now? Marty slowly chewed on his steak, watching Earl. Teddy scanned the room. No, he ain't here now. Two weeks of following someone around is a lot of exposure. Earl poked at Teddy with the notebook. Does Kelly know you know his business? Well, yeah, pretty much. He's a reporter, for Christ's sakes. He knows the major scams, land deals, working with the Indian leadership for the senator's brother, the Chicago connection, Vegas, the casinos, the thing at Dynacor, the DA's gambling debt. That's enough, Teddy, said Marty. He knows about Dynacor? Marty nodded. He mentioned it in the piece he wrote. What? For the shit local newspaper? So you talk to the... No, said Marty. He's going national. What do you mean, national? He's stringing for Newsweek, said Teddy. Earl sat back, rubbed his chin, his gaze taking in both men. You know this for a fact? Earl thought Marty looked a little too satisfied with himself. Got it right from the horse's mouth, from the owner of his newspaper. The guy already testified to Congress, answered questions for some committee. Well, Martin, said Earl, beginning to appreciate his own stake in this. This is a horse of a different color. I mean, he's a reporter. He's got notes and files and all sorts of paper on... Earl almost said us. We got that covered. The minute he's gone, so are all his papers. Files, recordings, everything. A fire. Terrible thing. But first, we need to get him out of the picture. Earl turned to Teddy. Did Kelly know you were on to him? I mean, did he see you? Earl waved the notebook at him and tried his best to smile. The truth now. This time, Teddy finished chewing and swallowed before he spoke. Earl, this ain't Chicago, and the streets get pretty deserted come summer with the big heat. But I kept my distance. I didn't crowd him, if that's what you're driving at. I'm pretty good at doing surveillance, if I say so myself. Earl gestured with his jaw towards the front door. Teddy, get the car and crank up the A.C. for me. I gotta finish talking with Marty. Something delicate. You understand. Sure, sure, I get it. Teddy didn't get it. You know, the desserts here are pretty good. We'll be just a couple of minutes, then you can drive me to the hotel. Earl gave Marty a playful wink. We'll stop off for some ice cream on the way if you're good, Teddy Bear. Marty let out a bark of a laugh. Teddy blushed. See you in the car, Earl, in the parking lot. Teddy stood and put a hand on his back pocket. We square, Marty? Marty waved at him as if batting a fly. Go on, get out of here. See you later in the office. Teddy turned and walked away. Marty turned to Earl. I love this kid. Marty picked a cherry tomato from his salad with his fingers and popped it into his mouth. Marty swallowed, then leaned towards Earl, an eager look on his face. But to Earl's surprise, he didn't talk about the job or about Teddy. How do you like that Eldorado? I get a new caddy every year. This one's four-speed automatic transmission. Fuel injection with a big 500-horsepower engine under the hood. A monster on the highway. People say I'm nuts for getting a convertible this time. But the weather in the fall and spring here is perfect for driving with the top down. And in the summer, 
It's got great AC, like a fucking freezer. Plush red leather interior, specially treated so it stays clean. All they got to do is give it a wipe and it shines like new. A phone under the dash in the middle, out of the way until you need it. All electric windows, limo tint, and AM, FM cassette stereo radio with six speakers. Four in the front, two in the back. A real class ride. Earl was patient. Look, Marty, said Earl, tilting his head towards the door. I know he's a friend of yours, but I gotta point out. The guy's a waste of a shirt. He's unreliable. A guy in your position should recognize that. He may have jeopardized the whole thing. Marty shook his head. I know there's bad blood between you two. Bad blood? He ran out on me. But Earl, you have to put that behind you for now. Come on. We all get ahead by this deal. Teddy, yeah, he's a goof for sure, but he knows the players in every corner of town. He's useful, and Teddy knows what's good for him. Being afraid is better, said Earl. Oh, he's afraid, all right. Afraid of you. You know what he told me they call you in Chicago? Heavy duty. <laughs> That's his nickname for you. Earl fanned the air like there was a bad odor. That didn't stop him from running out on me, leaving me to hoof it on my own. If I got stopped holding the goods leaving a cop shot back in the store, I would have been lucky to even make it to trial. That was another time, another place, a different city. Teddy, he's just trying to smooth things out, send you a little work for good money. Earl leaned back and folded his arms, but Marty wasn't finished. Look, I know he can be a weak motherfucker, but he's harmless. All he's got is his wits in his mouth. He's no good in a fight, doesn't even carry a piece, Jesus. In this town, grandmothers carry pieces in their handbags. Earl shook his head. He wasn't buying any of it. Okay, Earl, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you this because I want you to know I understand where you're coming from, and this gig is that important. If, in fact, Teddy turns out to be a liability, we cut him loose, period. Marty let Earl mull it over. Earl unfolded his arms and sat up. What are you saying exactly? I'm saying maybe, just maybe, my judgment's a little clouded, because I'm used to the kid. So let him work for you, and if you think he's screwing up, he's out. And if you have to, if things are going down the shitter, you deal with the problem. I won't question your judgment, just as long as it doesn't bring any heat down on me or Alvin. That exact enough? Whatever I decide is okay with you? Yes. So does that address your concerns? That sound all right to you? So if I decide to take him out, whatever you decide, I just don't want to hear about it, okay? Yeah. Is this still a problem for us? Not for me. A little cold, though, coming from you. It's kind of like taking a dog to the vet, you know? To put it down when it keeps crapping on the carpet and messing up your house? You just have to do what you have to do to keep your house in order. Marty leaned back. His eyes became small. So you can do this, right? We want it over and done with before he becomes something nobody can solve. Earl was ready. It'll cost you 20 G's. 10 tomorrow morning and 10 after it's over plus another grand for expenses and to tidy up loose ends. Earl thought he could leverage what he knew. Have Teddy deliver the first ten to my hotel room when he picks me up tomorrow morning around eight. You can give me the rest of your office after it's done on my way back to the airport. Earl waited a beat to let it sink in and then said with a smile, You don't want no receipts, do you? Jesus H, Earl. Leave me with a little dignity. Twenty and that's the end of it. I already picked up the plane in the hotel. Everything else comes out of your end. Earl gave him a nod. He was still ahead. But remember, it's got to be big, loud, and clear. And soon, the next couple or three days. Other than that, it's your show. Marty reached across the table and held out his hand, the class ring sitting on a finger like an extra knuckle. Earl shook Marty's hand and they closed the deal.
morning traffic south on Scottsdale Road was light, but Teddy still managed to find a faded purple Toyota to tailgate, the elderly driver slowing down at every intersection. Slow cars never stay out of the left lane here, said Teddy. Drives me fucking crazy. Earl studied the passing street signs. That's why I left Phoenix. That and the heat. But it's a dry heat, Teddy smiled. Earl pointed ahead. So's an oven. Up here on the left, McKellips, the green door. Hey, that's the name of some porn movie, ain't it? They didn't name their place after no porn movie Jesus. In Chicago, during the Prohibition, every speakeasy had a green door to advertise itself for the people who knew where to look. Speakeasy, huh? You're dating yourself, my man. If you want a drink, I can take you to the Lancelot. Good crowd and the drinks. I ain't interested in meeting your loser friends. I got business to attend to. Teddy pulled the caddy into the lot and parked in the back, far from the street. He started to get out, but Earl stopped him. Wait here, said Earl, closing his door and walking towards the entrance. Sure, no problem, said Teddy to the empty air. He closed his door and started the engine to run the air conditioning while he waited. He lit a cigarette and cracked the window to let the smoke out. Fucking guy, Teddy said to the smoke. He wanted to sit down with Earl's associates, the owners of the bar. He'd seen them around town, made men from Chicago, at least one of them, out here semi-retired, picking up a little here and there. Inside, it was dark and cool, empty but for one old-timer nursing a beer at the far end of the bar, watching a blonde woman, young enough to be his granddaughter, wearing nothing but panties and a look of disdain, swinging on a pole on a tiny stage the size of a modest wedding cake. She moved roughly in sync with an old AM radio hit she might have been conceived to, warbling from a restored Wurlitzer in the corner. A TV set mounted on the wall at the other end of the bar played a ball game without sound. The bartender watched the game while drying a glass with the same rag he used to wipe the top of the bar. Earl sat at a table by the front door with Jackie, entertaining Richie with a story about their last job in Chicago years ago. The look on his face... Ah! Jackie mimicked horror, and the other two laughed. I mean, it wasn't like we were going to kill the guy. Just bust him up some. You know, I heard he never did pay up, said Earl. I heard he skipped. Canada, probably. Freezing his ass off, Richie offered. All they had to do was follow the trail of piss he left, said Jackie, nudging Earl. Remember how he pissed himself? Earl howled. Oh, shit, yeah. It was disgusting. Jackie looked at Richie. Earl here takes out a knife. A big fucking hunting knife. A bowie knife. A bowie knife. And he says, I'm going to start by cutting off one of your balls, then the other. Remember? Earl grinned at the memory, and Jackie and Richie laughed. Who was that guy's name? Goldberg? Goldstein? Goldsmith? Goldman? Something gold. How do you remember shit like that? I just remember him wetting his pants. The look in your eyes even scared me a little, said Jackie. I thought you were serious for a couple of seconds. I was serious, said Earl. All that crying was working my last nerve, but I didn't want to get piss on me. He turned to Richie. So we broke his place up six ways to Sunday. Earl pointed to Jackie. This guy here hits the guy with a chair, like in the movies. Knocks the guy down flat, but the chair it don't break. Yeah. Jackie wiped his eyes and gave his nose a squeeze. Yeah, that was some funny stuff. He patted Earl on the shoulder. I'm glad you came by, friend. It's good to see you. Old times. Jackie made a thing of looking Earl up and down. You look good from all that California sun and fresh mountain air. I feel good. Jackie pointed his nose at the dancer, who at that moment was hanging upside down on the pole, her eyes on the game. Is there something we can do for you? I mean, besides sharing a laugh and buying you a drink? Earl gave her a glance. Yeah, actually. Ask, said Jackie. 
Four sticks of dynamite, ANFO, 7-30, with electric match blasting caps, number 8s or 9s, from out of town, if you can get them here in a couple of days. Despite what I've been told, there could be some heat about this, and I don't want it coming back this way and causing you trouble. Dynamite? What, a building? No, a car, but I have to make it big. The reporter, I bet. What's his name? Kelly? asked Richie. Earl's face was granite. Jackie backhanded Richie on the chest. I just figured. Earl looked at Jackie. Can you or can't you? Have it for you in... Jackie looked at Richie. Four sticks? Earl nodded. The car's a little over a ton. Well, four sticks will turn that size car into dust. Earl nodded again, and Richie leaned towards Jackie's ear and lowered his voice, speaking with respect. Little Tommy's driving back from New Mexico in a couple of days. Is that okay? Jackie thought it over, then shrugged. Do it. Jackie looked at Earl and explained. My mother-in-law's car broke down outside a gallop. I sent my nephew Tommy up there to bring back her car. The kid's wet behind the ears, but he's a good kid. He'll do what I tell him to. Richie said, when he checks in in a couple of hours, I'll tell him who to see. He'll be back in town with it. Two days tops. That work for you? Two days, no more. Earl reached into his pocket, but Jackie put a hand on his arm. You can square it when I give you the goods. Anything else? Yeah, I need a clean piece, a thirty-two, loaded. Don't need nothing more. Richie, go to the safe and fix him up. No problem. Richie stood and headed for the office in the back. Earl, a bill and a half sound reasonable? Make it a deuce. I'm not paying for it. I'll send Teddy to pick up the dynamite. He'll pay for it all, but don't mention to him nothing about the piece. Jackie nodded twice. That kid, Teddy, he's soft as a grape. He can be a hoot, but if I was you, I'd keep an eye on him. Always looking for an angle. You don't have to tell me, said Earl. He glanced at the dancer. You hear much these days from little John Pearson? Teddy was asleep when Earl opened the door and got into the caddy. Wake up, Teddy Bear. Teddy opened his eyes, which became wide when he saw the red engine light on the display. Shit! He turned the key off. What's the matter with you? I left the engine overheat and it stalled. Can't idle the car and run the air at the same time for too long. Jesus, if I ran the battery down, Marty's going to kill me. He loves this car. What he don't know won't hurt you. It's hot in here. Can we get going or what? Teddy turned the key. The engine turned over a few times and then caught. If I keep it moving, it'll charge the battery. In two days, you come back here and pay for this package that they got for me. You can take it out of the 200 you owe me. What? Oh, uh, I don't know. I'm a little short. Earl frowned at Teddy. That was enough. But yeah, sure, Earl, I'll, I'll get it together. Two days. Turn up the air. He looked out the window towards the street. Teddy hesitated, then turned on the air conditioning. The pitch of the engine dropped, but it kept running. The cold air calmed him. Where to now? Back to the hotel? Earl gave him an address in Tempe. I know this place. Little John, the electrician. Teddy turned south back onto Scottsdale Road. We'll be there in ten, fifteen minutes. You comfortable? Earl leaned back into the soft leather and watched the scenery. How's the radio in this thing? Keep your fucking shirt on! Teddy was just about to knock again when he heard Earl's voice. He did what he was told, holding the brown paper-wrapped package under one arm, but it was another five minutes before the door opened. A young blonde woman appeared, the wide strap of an overnight bag over one shoulder. How you doing? smiled Teddy. Is Earl in? 
She sized him up with a glance and swept past him, bouncing on her toes as she walked down the hallway towards the elevator. Teddy watched her from behind for a long second, then caught the edge of the door with his fingertips before it swung shut. The local morning news was on television, sound turned down to a mumble. Earl stood next to the bed wearing a t-shirt and jeans, no shoes or socks, a cigarette hanging from his lips. He was using a damp hotel washcloth to wipe clean the surface of a small metal box about the size of two packs of cigarettes. On the rumpled bed were two larger metal boxes, each about the size of a hardcover book, one of them with a small travel alarm clock wired and soldered to the top. How'd it go? That it? Earl said, pointing with the washcloth at the package under Teddy's arm. Teddy held out the package, but Earl pointed at the bed with the cigarette in his mouth. Open it and lay him on the bed. Teddy unwrapped the package and spread the four sticks of dynamite and four caps on the bed. Let me see, Earl said around the cigarette. Earl, listen, the stuff here cost me four bills. I think we got ripped off. Earl put the small box down on the bed and looked at Teddy. Sounds like you got ripped off, Teddy Bear. Hey, man. Tell you what, you get the difference from Marty. He's paying my expenses. Teddy expected that, but it was worth a try. He picked up the box with the alarm clock. We using a timer? Give it here, said Earl, taking the box from Teddy. You can forget about this one. It was a backup in case I couldn't get the remote to work, but the remote works fine. We ain't going to use it? Looks like a whole lot of work for nothing. Not your problem. Earl wrapped the washcloth around the timer and put it on the top shelf in the closet. So are these two the ones we're using? said Teddy, pointing at the boxes on the bed. You get them from Little John? Instead of answering, Earl entered the bathroom and took his time washing and drying his hands. Teddy was determined not to let Earl get to him. He picked up the smaller box and spoke loud enough for Earl to hear him. This little one here looks like one of those remote controls for a toy plane. Teddy flipped a switch back and forth and pressed a large red button in the center of the box a couple of times. Nothing happened. How's it work? Earl came out of the bathroom, drying his hands with a towel. You're holding the transmitter. He pointed at the larger box on the bed. This bigger one here, this is the bomb proper. Go on, pick it up and look it over. Teddy put the transmitter down and picked up the bomb. It was heavier than it looked. Teddy turned the bomb over, exposing two flat metal plates welded to the bottom, and Earl pointed. Those are two magnets to attach the bomb to the car's chassis, so you can just reach under the car, slap it on, and walk away. Teddy turned the bomb over again. Inside, there's a 9-volt battery that provides juice to a radio receiver tuned to the transmitter and a relay switch with wires to the lead. He pointed to the tips of the two leads sticking out from the top, then to a nearby toggle switch. Here's the on-off switch to turn the receiver on and off. You don't want it except on the signal until you're ready, right? That LED light shows you when the receiver's on. You tape the dynamite to the box with duct tape, double-check to make sure the switch is off, wind the wires on the blasting caps around the leads, and shove the caps into the sticks. Just before you place the bomb, you flick the switch on. Earl pointed to the switch. Go ahead, try the switch. You don't see no dynamite attached, do you? Teddy flicked the switch with an audible click, and the LED lit. The light means the bomb's hot and ready to receive the signal from the transmitter. Teddy placed the bomb on the bed and picked up the transmitter. Earl pointed to the red button. When you press that, it sends a signal up to 250 yards to the receiver, which flips the relay switch that connects the 9-volt to the leads. This switch here turns it on, and this light here shows you it's working. Teddy threw the switch in a white LED lit. Now press the button. Teddy pressed the button with his thumb, and the sound of a loud snap emanated from the bomb on the bed, startling Teddy, who fumbled with the transmitter, then put it down on the bed. Turn the switches off, said Earl, walking back to the bathroom. You don't want to run the batteries down. 
Teddy bent over the bed and flipped the switches into the off position. Seems kind of a complicated thing, said Teddy. Wouldn't using a timer be a lot easier? Teddy could see Earl in the bathroom, looking into the mirror and combing his hair with his fingers. If you're dealing with a guy in a car, timers are good for when, but not where. With a timer, you know what time it'll go off, but you can't be sure where the guy will be when it does go off. Traffic, stoplights, side trips. He might not even be in the car. Sure, I get it. If I don't care where he is exactly, just when, and I know he'll be in the car because, like he's got a long ride ahead of him, then sure, I can use a timer. Otherwise, I don't risk it. You want it public. Right moment, right place. For that kind of precision, someone needs to be there and push the trigger himself. Yeah, yeah, I get it. You, personally, have nothing to worry about, Theodore, Earl said from the bathroom. I'm just showing you this is a courtesy, so Marty knows he's getting his money's worth. I'll handle the hard parts. Earl came out with towels that he carefully wrapped around the items. He put everything in the closet and closed the door. Tomorrow, right? Teddy sounded upbeat. Earl took a shirt out of his bag and put it on. Hey, you hungry? Let's grab a bite to eat, then pick up some duct tape. He turned the TV off and slid his room key off the top of the dresser. Then you gotta make a call. Me? Who am I calling? Teddy thought Earl looked at him kind of strange, like he was a piece of meat. Kelly, you're calling Kelly to make an appointment. You're the bait. Meet with CI, lunch at club, back in office around 1.30 p.m. The single line was typed in all caps at the top edge of a sheet of paper that stuck out from the roller of an ancient Olivetti, a notice for anyone entering his office looking for him. John Kelly gathered cigarettes, notebook, and car keys off his desk and dropped them into the stretched-out pockets of his sports coat. The springs in his swivel chair groaned when he rose. He plopped an off-white fedora with a gray band on his head. He put on a pair of shades and glanced at his reflection on the way to the door. I'm out of here, he said to the face in the mirror. John stepped through the newsroom, passing at least a dozen people, some on the phone, others typing on typewriters. No one said a word to him. He bolted down the two flights to the parking lot where his new Datsun 710 was parked. Going to lunch, Mr. Kelly? John looked at the gray man in the gray security uniform who guarded the parking lot space from unauthorized cars and teenage boys on skateboards. John took a dollar from his pocket and put it in the man's hand. Gotta work first, Wally. Need to hear what someone wants to say. You spend on a food, right? I'm running late, so some fella came by wandering through the lot, looking at cars and asking if you was here. I told him you was in. That stopped John. He must have taken the elevator and missed me. John thought of Teddy Mitchell, his tale for the past few weeks. What did he look like? Blonde fellow? Late twenties? Sort of pudgy? Wally looked towards the lot. Nah, he was a tall fella. Black hair, big around the shoulders and arms. He was wearing sunglasses, so I didn't get a good look. John shook his head. Don't recognize him. If it's important, he'll come back again. John walked towards his car, holding the door open to let the hot air inside escape before he got in. Wally called after him. If I see the fella, I'll tell him for you. John waved as he sat down behind the wheel and started his car. He hesitated before putting on the air conditioning so he could take in the new car smell. John smiled and shut the door. He drove ten minutes at a steady pace to the Hotel Clarendon, rehearsing the questions he was going to ask Mitchell. 
He pulled into the hotel lot and parked in an empty row towards the back, away from the other cars, to keep his doors from getting dinged. John locked the car and walked up to the front entrance. The doorman, in an uncomfortable-looking uniform, opened the door for John. Here for lunch, Mr. Kelly? Not today, Larry. Just meeting somebody. Do me a favor and keep an eye on my car. Brand new. John slipped him a dollar bill and the kid returned some sort of salute. Absolutely, Mr. Kelly. Enjoy your meeting. John saluted back, just to be funny. He looked around the lobby, spacious and cool like a cave, and not seeing anyone that looked like Mitchell, found an overstuffed chair in Ottoman and sat down, first lighting a cigarette, then picking up a newspaper someone left behind. He half-watched people get on and off the elevators, drop letters in the mail slot, ask the front desk for directions, and the concierge for reservations. His mind drifted, and he thought about his plans for the evening with his wife, dinner and a movie to celebrate their 15th wedding anniversary. Their older children would watch the younger ones. John would give them money for pizza and tell the older children to let the little ones stay up to watch Starsky and Hutch as a special treat for behaving. After waiting 15 minutes, John got up and went to the reception desk, where a clerk was standing, waiting for someone to tell him what to do. Hi, did uh, somebody leave a message for me? My name is John Kelly. Let me check, Mr. Kelly. The clerk turned and looked through several notes on a shelf hidden behind the counter. He looked up. No, sir, I'm sorry, but there are no messages for Mr. Kelly. If you would like to call the guest's room, there's a house phone over there by that table. He pointed behind John towards the elevators. Yeah, thanks, said John. He looked around the lobby for the last time and headed for the door, thinking he would get a head start on meeting some of his colleagues for lunch. He didn't give Mitchell much thought. People no show all the time. John stepped out into the sunlight and was squinting when the doorman asked, Meeting over already, Mr. Kelly? I got stood up. John walked towards the parking lot, but turned to ask, My car okay? Nobody parks way out there, Mr. Kelly. The doorman gave John a one-sided smile. Do you have enough water for the hike out to your car, or shall I call you a cab to drive you there? The doorman saluted with a friendly wave. John flipped him a friendly bird and walked off to his car. Larry liked his job. The uniform was a pain and a half most of the year, particularly during monsoon season, when the humidity was worse than the heat. But the tips were good, and the work wasn't backbreaking. The porters did most of the lifting and carrying, and he got to meet a lot of interesting people from out of town and some nice locals like Mr. Kelly. It wasn't exciting, but Larry felt he was better off in the fresh air than working inside all day. It was almost noon, and in spite of the growing heat, there was activity on the street. Cars drove past the hotel in both directions, and Larry saw about a dozen people on the sidewalk. He watched a woman and what could have been her daughter coming out of the cactus flower dress shop next door. Four teenage boys went into the sub shop down the street. Directly across the street, a man walked down the stairs in front of an office building. Larry figured he was probably going to lunch. Larry noticed a well-kept late-model green and white pickup parked a few doors down on the other side of the street, but he didn't see Teddy in white painter's overalls crouched behind it. Larry waved as Mr. Kelly's brand-new white Datsun 712 drove past the front of the hotel entrance and watched as the car pulled out into the street then exploded. Larry saw a flash of light, then was hit in the face and on his body by a solid wall of air, crushing him backwards into the door. He didn't hear the sounds until later. The glass on the front doors behind Larry had already shattered, and more glass rained down on him from the shattered windows above. Larry fell to the ground and instinctively covered his head with his hands, which were already bloody from cuts from the glass. He didn't notice the green and white pickup had driven away slowly. More people appeared on the street. 
the man who came out of the building just before the explosion ran to a flaming pile of twisted metal that was in the same spot where mr kelly's car had just been and crouched down to help mr kelly who said something to the man the man patted mr kelly on the shoulder stood up and pulled his own belt off to use as a tourniquet shouting help does anyone have a belt i need another belt or a tie to stop the bleeding officer green was approaching a car with california plates that had just rolled through a stop sign he had his ticket book out when he heard the explosion and saw the column of black smoke the next street over he ran to his patrol car turned on his siren and raced around the corner one hand on the steering wheel the other on his radio microphone officer green stopped his patrol car within a few feet of the wreck that used to be john kelly's datsun seven twelve and told dispatch what he saw back up and an ambulance were on the way john was half in half out of the driver's side of the car his skin and his clothes were shredded blackened and bloodied and he was not moving one leg and one arm were twisted at an impossible angle and another leg was missing the driver's seat and floorboard beneath it were gone the street visible through the hole parts of the steering wheel and dashboard were scattered in the street all the glass in the car was gone the good samaritan was tightening his belt around one of john's thighs as officer green approached green removed his own belt and applied it to the remains of the other leg what happened here green shouted and immediately felt stupid for asking tears streamed from the samaritan who patted john on the shoulder telling him he'll be all right but green who saw combat in vietnam didn't think so the man on the ground had his eyes closed and looked pale from the loss of blood still streaming from the wounds suddenly the man opened his eyes and turned towards green they got me teddy mitchell rt limited the mob then he passed out he never regained consciousness eleven days later john kelly died Earl flicked the switch off. It just seemed the natural thing to do, and slipped the transmitter into a shipping envelope addressed to the police. He sealed the envelope and headed out the door of a guest room on the 15th floor that had a bird's-eye view of the street in the front of the hotel, enabling him to watch the setup, the explosion, and the aftermath, Teddy giving him the all-clear signal, then ducking behind his truck. A citizen unexpectedly coming out of a building across the street, just as Kelly's car reached the street. The explosion the citizen running to the burning car the cop car with lights flashing rounding the corner and almost running over kelly just like in a movie earl thought as he closed the door slipped off his gloves and put them in his pocket he held the envelope by a corner as he headed for the elevator a short ride down to the lobby then he dropped the envelope with the transmitter with teddy's fingerprints on it into the mail slot on his way out of the shattered door They were standing around Marty's desk, just about to drink a toast, when the intercom buzzed. Line one, Marty. It wouldn't say who's calling. Marty pushed a button on his phone and listened. His smile evaporated. He quickly forgot the drink in his hand. You know this for a fact, he said into the phone. He lowered himself into his leather executive chair, then realized he was still holding the glass of quality whiskey, drank it, and gestured to Teddy to pour another. Earl sipped at his drink while checking the envelope Marty had given him containing the $10,000, the balance of his payment. It looked and felt right. Earl put the envelope in his jacket pocket, 
The rest of the money was in his bag, but at that moment, he was focused on Marty's half of the telephone conversation. Marty put the phone back on its cradle. He gulped down the refill and, looking at Teddy, pointed to the door with his nose. Teddy closed the door without a sound. What's up, Marty? asked Teddy. Marty looked at Earl. He's not dead. Kelly is alive. That's impossible, said Teddy. I was there. Who was that on the phone? asked Earl. A friend of mine in the department. Says they brought Kelly to the emergency room at Central. In pieces, right? He conscious? asked Teddy. He's talking? Not now. He won't make it. Lost a leg, probably both, and an arm. Lost too much blood, Marty looked at Earl. But he stayed awake long enough to tell the first cop on the scene that he was supposed to meet Teddy, and that Teddy set him up. Earl and Teddy looked at each other. Mentioned the company and the organization by name, too. That's not going to go down well with Albin, Aura's associates. Traffic below in the street was the only sound in the room until Teddy turned to Earl. I thought you said four sticks was enough. Earl looked at him and shrugged. Dust, you said. Four sticks would turn the car into dust. Didn't you say that? I don't know what happened. Maybe two of the caps were duds. Relax. If he ain't dead, he will be soon. You saw the car. He's never going to testify, and whatever he said was hearsay. Right, counselor? Is that right, Marty? asked Teddy. Marty flipped his hand back and forth several times. I think considering the circumstances, we should stick to the plan and get Earl here the hell out of Dodge, said Marty. Promptly. I'm with you, counselor. Got my bag with me and ready to hit the road. Good, said Marty, running his fingers through his hair. Teddy, you too. Get out of town for just a few days until this blows over. Where should I go? He said my name. It won't look suspicious, asked Teddy. No, man, you'll be fine. You just need to be someplace else for a while. Take Earl to the airport like we planned, then call up Maureen or that other broad. Sandy, yeah, Sandy, whatever. Call her from one of the girls' lines out in the waiting room. I can't tie up my phone. Tell her you're taking her to Havasu as a surprise. They love that kind of thing. Stay at the Frente a la Playa. Get a suite. Be seen. Use the pool. Drink at the bar. Eat dinner in the big room. Live it up. Put the whole thing on my tab, but don't call. Wait until you're back in town. Okay, Marty. Taken care of. Um, can I take the caddy? Marty nodded. Sure, sure. He looked at Earl. Just a bump in the road. I'll take care of everything. Putting out fires is what people like us do, huh? Marty locked eyes with Earl. Earl released him with a slight nod. Earl picked up his bag. Hell, Teddy, I ain't waiting around while you figure out which broad to call. He headed for the door. I need a cigarette. I'll meet you by the car. Teddy watched Earl leave and waited until he heard the outer office door close. Marty, is this my moment? As if to answer him, Marty opened a drawer and reached in, hesitating a moment before Teddy said, The twenty-two. Marty looked Teddy in the eyes, then handed him a small revolver that almost looked like a toy. Teddy pointed the muzzle at the floor, swung out the cylinder, and spun it to check to see if it was loaded. He closed the cylinder with a flick of his wrist and put the gun in his jacket pocket. Marty said, I want that back. The bullets, too? Get out of here. I've got to make a few calls. Teddy walked towards the door, but spoke over his shoulder. See you in a couple of days. You put so much as a scratch in that car, Teddy. It's your ass. The caddy shot down a new but empty four-lane road that cut straight into the desert, all the way to the horizon. Earl took in the empty brush, crooked gullies, and low hills through his wraparound shades. A hint of tattoos on his biceps peeked from under his rolled-up sleeves. His jacket and bag were on the back seat. The sky was a cloudless, deep blue. The late afternoon sun was about to crest the peak of the white tanks, but its light was still intense enough to cause Teddy to drive with his visor down and force Earl to watch the scenery out of the passenger window. Teddy fiddled with the air conditioning, then checked the rearview mirror. Earl checked his watch. How far away are we from the airport? Not far. Another 15 minutes. 
There's no traffic this way. People don't know about it yet. Plenty of time. Earl wiped his brow. It's getting fucking hot in here. Turn up the A.C. It's all the way up, said Teddy. This fucking A.C. ain't working. Maybe from the other day when it overheated. I don't know what's wrong. He pushed the button on his armrest that lowered all the windows simultaneously, hitting them with scorching wind. It was like opening the door to a furnace. This sucks, Teddy said. I'm putting the top down. Teddy slowed the caddy and pulled over, stopping on the shoulder of the road. He kept the engine running. He pressed another button, and the cloth top automatically folded back, exposing them to the afternoon sun. Christ, said Earl. Now I'm going to sweat up my clothes and stink up the plane. He checked the time again. Teddy kept both hands on the steering wheel, working up his nerve. He looked through the windshield at the hood of the car and spoke with care. I asked Marty for the 200 for the dynamite, and he told me you're paying for your own expenses and I should get the 200 from you. Earl cupped an air. Did I hear you right, Teddy? Teddy waited. Sounds like you're shaking me down. I just want what's mine, Earl. That's all. Well, Teddy Bear, Teddy looked at Earl. I told you, don't call me that. I'll tell you what. I'll give you the two bills when we get to the airport, assuming we get there in time for me to make my plane. Earl checked his watch again and looked up at the sky. You okay with that? Teddy's hands dropped to his lap. His heart was pounding in his ears, but his voice remained flat. Just give me what's mine. His left hand slid to the left pocket of his jacket. Earl said, Ho, ho, the kid just grew a pair. But something in his voice wasn't joking. He raised his arm in mock surrender. Okay, okay, you win. I don't want to miss my plane. Earl glanced at his watch, then pointed with his thumb towards the back seat. I've got the money back there in my jacket. Earl arched his back, his head tilted up towards the sky, and stretched one arm onto the back seat, groping inside his jacket. His hand stopped moving when he found what he was looking for. Hey, Teddy Bear, Earl said, eyes turning back to look at Teddy. If we're headed for the airport, how come I don't see no planes? Teddy fired the twenty-two caliber revolver once from his lap, hitting Earl in the stomach, then raised his arm and fired twice into Earl's face. Pop! Pop! A friend called Dickie Bones once told Teddy he preferred the twenty-two because it made small holes so there wouldn't be much blood, but you needed to get close enough to make sure you got it right. Earl fell back against the door, his head and an arm hanging out the open window. Teddy looked up and down the road and, seeing no other cars, placed the muzzle of the gun close to Earl's forehead and shot once more. Earl's head jerked back and his shades flew off, clattering onto the road. Teddy watched Earl, motionless and bleeding, for any signs of movement, and seeing none, put the gun back in his jacket pocket, shifted the transmission into low, and turned the caddy into the desert. He drove about five minutes, his breathing and heart returning to normal, before he found a good spot deep in the brush behind a small hill that blocked the view from the road. First thing he did was take his jacket off and carefully lay it on the back seat so as not to wrinkle it. He pulled open the passenger door and dragged Earl out of the car, laying him on his back. Earl was a big man and his clothes absorbed most of the blood. Teddy examined the car. A little blood spattered here and there on the seat back and on the door panel, and some dripped down the exterior side of the door, but none pulled on the seat or carpet. Nothing Teddy couldn't clean up with the rag and spray bottle of Mr. Clean he had in the trunk. Teddy went through Earl's pockets, finding house keys, pocket change, and a jackknife. He rolled Earl onto his stomach and removed his wallet with a California driver's license, a diner's club card, and almost $700 in 20s and 100s. 
Teddy threw the keys into the desert and tossed the wallet and knife onto the driver's seat, then climbed into the back seat and went through Earl's jacket pockets, where he found a clean white cloth handkerchief and the thirty-two caliber Smith & Wesson Earl was reaching for, the handle wrapped in black electric tape. In Earl's bag, buried in his dirty laundry, were the two envelopes, each fat with hundred-dollar bills. He dropped both envelopes and the gun onto the driver's seat alongside the wallet and knife. Teddy opened the trunk and took out a ball cap, a bottle of water, and a square-point steel digging shovel with a long wooden handle. He took his shirt off and draped it over the driver's door, smoothing out the wrinkles with his hand. He walked about ten yards from the car, his gaze shifting between the ground and the horizon, looking for a spot with few rocks, but still out of sight of the road. When he found the spot, he started digging. It took him almost two hours to dig a trench about five feet long and four feet deep. Teddy rested on the edge, legs dangling into the trench, and caught his breath. This is the hard part, he thought, and smiled to himself. He tossed his head back and finished the water, then dropped the plastic bottle into the trench. The dry heat caused his sweat to evaporate so quickly that his skin felt dirty but dry. He looked at his watch. It was 5.27 p.m. Looks like you just missed your plane, Earl, said Teddy, turning to the car to address the dead man. The car exploded in a flash of white as bright as the overhead sun. A solid wave of air moving like a train knocked Teddy into the ditch, protecting him from pieces of metal and rock hurtling in all directions. The first thing Teddy noticed was how cool the air in the ditch felt, then how quiet everything was. He screamed in shock, feeling his lips and jaw move, his throat burn, but he couldn't hear his own voice, only what sounded like the hissing of a hundred thousand snakes. Teddy poked his head up from the ditch just as torn and burning twenty and hundred dollar bills started raining down on him, but Teddy didn't see the ruined money. Instead, for the second time that day, his eyes were fixed on a twisted metal skeleton, its interior burning yellow. He pictured a travel alarm clock soldered to a large metal box with a stick of dynamite taped on either side. Son of a bitch, said Teddy as he watched the caddy disappear in flames. Marty's gonna kill me. Once again, you just listened to Richard C. Katz, uh, the highly, almost say Hollywood produced um, story, Heavy Duty. Yeah, I loved it, but then I hated that guy so much because it was like, this is what we do hundreds of episodes, and we don't sound anywhere near that good. So kudos, Mr. Katz. Now, I, I have, uh, I, I believe this is an older bio for him, but nothing in here indicates, well, maybe. Let's see. So Richard Katz has worked as a delivery man, salesman, rock drummer, speech and language clinician, researcher, college lecturer, and administrator. So I have a rock drummer, maybe? He's got like some sound stuff going on. Is that maybe He's probably he knows someone with a studio or something. Yeah, so maybe that's what it is. But god damn it. Nice job, sir. Good story. Great job. Um, unbelievable production value though. Yeah. Multiple explosions. He might be maybe Michael Bay is his cousin or something. It could be, yeah, you never know. So, um, but yeah, and, and just a, ter- a terrific reader too. I mean, seriously, dude, that voice is just made for for reading out loud. He's given Barry Graham uh, a run for his money, but I still like Graham's got a way about him. He's got that foreign kind of. Well, that's uh, you can't beat that accent. That, yeah. yeah. So no matter how smooth you are, you throw on that accent, women's and men's apparently all get sucked into that. So. All right, well, we don't want to keep you all day and all night. This is already a long episode. Absolutely. And don't forget to uh, buy some Seth Harwood books, all available at Seth's page at Amazon. Um, I also understand 
then maybe, maybe soon in the near future, Seth will have some content up here on Crime Wave. We might get to take a month off. Maybe Seth does the whole thing by himself. That's right. And we just sit back and collect all the... Well, we don't get All the nothing. <laughs> yeah. so, but you know what? It'd be like a vacation, sort of. That's right. Like a month off. Either way, there's lots of Seth stuff out there for you to get. Um, and then we'll be back soon, very soon. Until then, I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Thank you for listening to The Crime Wave. I'm your host, Seth Harwood. I hope you'll check out the rest of the stories here on Crime Wave and tell your friends about it. It's the C-R-I-M-E-W-A-V. Help pass the word. Register at our site so that you can participate in the forums and add comments to the episodes. You can email us with questions or comments at info at crimewave.com. Aldo, the mystery dog, and I will get your email, and we'll get back to you right quick. You can also call the K7 line, 206-350-4998, to leave comments or feedback. And if you leave a great message, we'll even play it at the end of a show. So drop a line, hop on the website, visit often, spread the word, and thank you for stopping by the Crime Wave. It's a crime. It's a crime.